Well, greetings. We're going to look at 13 verses from 2 Timothy chapter 2, basically the second half of the chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And I'll say that the topic and the title were assigned to me. They left it to me to choose a text that would fit the subject that they asked me to deal with. And, and yes, I know that's exactly backward from how we teach our seminary students to do it. But you'll just have to bear with me. I'm nothing if not compliant. <laughs> of course, the theme of our Shepherds Conference this year, you've heard numerous times, faithfulness. And the title I was assigned is Faithful to Guard. And I'm grateful for that assignment because it's a topic I'm passionate about. And actually, I can think of dozens of New Testament texts that would fit that theme. But I chose this one because in a very painful and personal way, this one challenges me and rebukes me. And I'll be honest, this is a passage of Scripture that steps on my toes pretty hard. So let's scan the context before we read the text. The, The most familiar part of this passage, of course, is verse 15, where Paul urges Timothy to be diligent in the quest to present himself before God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is also where, in verse 17, Paul compares false teaching to gangrene, and he even names two false teachers by name, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. So he is instructing Timothy to be faithful in every sense, be hardworking, be plain-spoken, and even be outspoken. Outspoken because just two chapters after this is where he's going to tell Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and do that even when people are begging to have their ears tickled with a more pleasing kind of storytelling. And so this entire epistle really could wear the same title that they've assigned me here, Faithful to Guard. That's what Paul's final message to Timothy is all about. This is his last epistle before he gave his life for the gospel. And he gets right to the point in verses 13 and 14 of the opening chapter with this command, where he tells Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And notice In the very next verse, verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul names by name again two other ecclesiastical miscreants. This is one of the saddest verses in all of Paul's writings. He says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. And he tells Timothy, be faithful to guard the legacy that I am leaving you, even if it seems like you are the only one left. And that is his charge to Timothy, be faithful to guard, and that remains his main message all the way to the end of the epistle. All those familiar pastoral texts about rightly dividing the word of truth and preach the word in season and out of season and be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, all of it is an extension and an amplification of his desire to see Timothy follow the pattern of sound words and guard the good deposit that had been entrusted to him. And now Paul stresses throughout his writings to Timothy 
that faithfully guarding the good deposit is a continuous struggle. It's a fierce striving that entails conflict and persecution and perhaps even martyrdom, in Timothy's case, for sure. He keeps saying things to Timothy like, share in suffering for the gospel, and all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Endure suffering. Because he's telling Timothy, ministry, true ministry, involves adversity and trouble. Faithful ministry is nothing less than spiritual warfare. And both of the epistles Paul wrote to Timothy are filled with admonitions for Timothy to be strong, be courageous, wage the good warfare, fight the good fight of faith. So this is not a new idea for Timothy, but that is precisely where our chapter starts on a militant note, chapter 2, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier. Now, don't miss this. Paul likens pastoral ministry to soldiering. It's just one more reminder to Timothy that ministry involves warfare. It's a battle. It's an unrelenting battle to proclaim and preserve the truth in a context where the truth is often met with animosity and opposition. And it's not just the unbelieving world, but quite often, and and frankly, more and more often nowadays, even large segments of the visible church react to unpopular or inconvenient truths with overt hostility. The time has come in our generation, as Paul had said it would, when people will not endure sound teaching, but they have accumulated for themselves teachers who suit their passions. They've turned away from listening to the truth and have wandered off into myths. And Paul is telling Timothy, and by extension, he's saying to all of us who are in positions of church leadership, if you cater to that, if you are not engaged in the fight to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you, you're not being faithful to your calling. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then here in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul tells Timothy, indeed, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. So in other words, he's telling Timothy, if you're looking for a career, he's telling us this as well, if you're looking for a career in a context where you never get any pushback, get out of the ministry because you cannot avoid conflict and be faithful in ministry. It was the Apostle John who we know and sometimes call the the Apostle of Love. He's the one who said, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. If you're so eager to be liked and affirmed that you cannot bring yourself to refute false teaching or do anything to reprove or correct or fend off the savage wolves that seem to roam in and out of the church in large, hungry packs these days, then you've abdicated one of your main duties as an elder of the church. And in fact, let me be totally candid. If you are so averse to conflict that you're unwilling to refute error or 
or correct the bevy of bad beliefs that Christians are currently experimenting with, you're really not fit to be an elder. Because one of the qualifications given in Scripture for anyone who would lead the church is this set of twin duties. He must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's 1 Timothy 1.9, and Paul goes on, or sorry, that's Titus 1.9, and Paul goes on to tell Titus that there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, and they must be silenced. Or in the more picturesque framing, uh, phrasing of the King James Version, their mouths must be stopped. And that's not an isolated or infrequent theme in Paul's pastoral writings. His message to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 was a charge to be alert because grievous wolves were going to try to tear the flock to shreds. And Paul warned them, even from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And let's be honest, that's not exactly a winsome message wasn't even in those days, but it was a truth they needed to be told. And Paul wants Timothy to stand boldly for the truth in the same way. So his opening admonition in his first epistle to Timothy is a directive telling Timothy not to tolerate false teaching. And he makes it clear that this wasn't the first time he had spoken to Timothy about this. 1 Timothy 1.3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And the apostle clearly wants Timothy and every elder in the church to be steadfast in exposing and refuting and silencing those who were trying to peddle false teachings within the church. In other words, be faithful to guard the truth. Be faithful to guard the flock that God has entrusted to your care. Be faithful to guard the whole church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. But in addition to all of that, be faithful to guard your own heart and mind and passions. And that is the point at which this duty gets most personal. Paul says it in a single sentence to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, where he says, "...and keep a close watch on yourself." and on the teaching. And notice the order. Watch yourself and guard the teaching. You need to be a guard. You want to be a guardian of uh, gospel truth? First, you need to set a watch on your own heart and your own tongue and your own affections and your own attitude and your own mind. In short, guard your own labor and attitude and love for Christ. Verse 22 of our text, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That is the key verse of our passage. And that expression, youthful passions, it really covers everything from fleshly lusts to that pugnacious adolescent itch to argue and quarrel about everything. And that's the real point of this passage, and it's remarkable, because it comes in this context where Paul is urging Timothy to be courageous, to be a good soldier, to guard the deposit of truth, and not to shy away from proclaiming and protecting it, all in the face of guaranteed hostility from the enemies of truth. But then right in the middle of this epistle, we have this section 
starting in verse 14, going through the end of the chapter, and the message from verse 14 to the end is a rebuke and a corrective to those of us who may find it a little too easy to be contentious. Now remember, this is where Paul urges Timothy to do his best to be a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. And he describes how to do that by handling the word rightly, by fending off those whose irreverent and erroneous talk is like gangrene, by cleansing himself from all that is dishonorable, and by correcting his opponents. And all of those things are aspects of the spiritual warfare in which we are called to serve as soldiers. So uh, he is not, for one minute here, backing off the command to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But he is describing what a truly good soldier is like. And, and this is what stand out, stands out so starkly in our passage. Paul begins and ends with admonitions reminding Timothy not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. But rather, he says, be kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He tells Timothy not to engage the purveyors of this verbal gangrene in empty chatter. The ESV says irreverent babble. The NIV says godless chatter. The Phil Johnson paraphrase might say fruitless Twitter battles. <laughs> I told you this text steps pretty hard on my toes. So it's an appeal with instructions on how we are supposed to do discernment and carry on theological polemics. Being pugnacious, those who look for and love all of those all-out theological bar brawls. To do that, he says, is a disqualifying characteristic for elders. We must be faithful to guard the truth, but here is how we must do it. Verse 24, be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Now, one more word about the immediate context before I get into the passage itself. In the first half of this chapter, Notice, Paul has employed three metaphors in quick succession. The soldier, verse 4, the athlete, verse 5, and the farmer, verse 6. Paul deliberately mixes those metaphors in order to highlight three characteristics of faithful ministry. And you can take them in reverse order. You have the virtues of hard work, symbolized by the farmer, determination, exemplified by the athlete, and readiness to fight, represented by the, sh the soldier. And these are essential qualities that he's going to bring up again in our passage in the second half of the chapter. So this is part of the context. And by the way, what Paul commends about the soldier is not a combative nature. It's not a love of warfare. This is about readiness, focus, faithfulness, endurance, a willingness to suffer, and above all, a love for and a devotion to the cause for which he fights. Paul is not commending brutishness or venom or malice. He's not suggesting that every disagreement needs to be answered with sharp-tongued severity or snark. He's not urging Timothy to deal with the gangrene of Hymenaeus and Philetus by amputating the infected part of the body with a battle axe. He's not calling Timothy to war against every member of the flock who just doesn't get it. 
On the contrary, what he's going to say in our passage is that we as ministers are not lords over the flock, much less are we warlords under orders to be constantly on the attack. We're the Lord's servants, and therefore the default response to our opponents should be Christ-like gentleness. Remember that Jesus said of himself, I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's Christ-likeness. That's the heart of it. Now look at verse 11. Here Paul seems to be quoting something that would be familiar to Timothy. He calls it a saying. It's a reliable saying, he says, trustworthy. And it's arranged in poetic fashion. So this was probably a hymn or a portion of a hymn about martyrdom and the blessing of suffering for Christ's sake. It was probably a chorus that was sung in first century churches. It goes like this, if we, had di- if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that is the lead-in to our text. It's a hymn that would have made a great theme chorus for this week's conference because it's all about faithfulness, both the enduring faithfulness of God Himself, who remains faithful even if we are faithless, and the hymn also celebrates the rewards of living faithfully. If we endure, we will reign with Him. And then right after that hymn, we have our passage, verses 14 through 26, and it goes like this. Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, That passage is, in effect, Paul's own commentary on 1 Timothy 4.16, which is where he told Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Here he is simply expounding on that simple two-pronged command. How can we as ministers guard ourselves and guard the teaching? The passage I've just read is a fairly comprehensive answer to that question. 
And it's a threefold answer. Paul says, first of all, verse 15, be an approved workman, which is to say, guard your own teaching. Second, verse 21, be a sanctified vessel, which is to say, guard your heart. And third, verse 24, be a humble slave, meaning guard your attitude. It's all right there in this passage, and so let's look at these one at a time. Here is how to be a faithful guardian of truth. First of all, be an approved workman. Guard your own teaching. One of the intriguing facts that's obvious from even a cursory study of Paul's New Testament epistles is that the early church was beset with heretics and false teachers from the very beginning. All of Paul's epistles, except Philemon, deal with problems that stemmed from false teaching in the church. And the apostles John and Peter likewise had to address and correct significant doctrinal errors in every one of their epistles. And you think about this, even Christ's letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, throughout them a major and recurring theme is the damage that has been done in those flocks by heretics and false prophets and unorthodox teachings and antinomian behavior and even rank apostasy that had already infected those churches from within before the end of the first century. One other thing the New Testament stresses is that false teaching from within the visible church is actually a far greater threat to the spiritual health and well-being of the church than all of the combined persecution and antagonism and ridicule or any other kind of opposition from the world. Satan's primary attack on the church is not being carried out by atheists who openly despise Christianity and deny the truth of Scripture. But the devil's most relentless and effective assault on the body of Christ is an attack that comes from within the visible community of professing Christians. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light. That's 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. And verse 15 says this, "...his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness." He's talking about people who come into the church and inject false beliefs and corrupt teachings that spread like gangrene. And Paul even names these two examples, verse 17, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, this guy, Hymenaeus, was a real rogue. He was the Rob Bell of the first century. He never met a heresy he didn't like. Paul first mentions him in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 20, where he is linked up there with Alexander. Apparently, that's the same Alexander the coppersmith mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.14, of whom Paul says, he did me great harm. Whatever Alexander was doing was destructive somehow to both faith and morality. He was probably teaching some blasphemous corruption of the principle of grace that fostered lewd or lascivious behavior because Paul says Alexander and Hymenaeus had abandoned both faith and a good conscience and made shipwreck of their faith. And Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. So they're blasphemers as well. In other words, when Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan, he means he had used his apostolic authority to summarily excommunicate them. But Hymenaeus was still troubling the church, and now he has a new partner. He's linked up with Philetus, 
and together they are peddling a preterist view of New Testament eschatology. In other words, they were claiming that all of the end times prophecy that really matters has already been fulfilled up to and including the resurrection of the dead, which of course was a full frontal attack on a cardinal doctrine of the Bible. Jesus himself had promised the resurrection of the dead in John 5.25, where he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And Hymenaeus was probably telling people that the resurrection was only a spiritual rebirth. It's not a literal bodily reality. And he might have even been quoting Paul's words from Romans 6.11, where Paul says, Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it's a spiritual thing. We're already resurrected in Christ. There were half a dozen ways like that, that these guys might have tried to justify their pet heresy, and they were, they're the same techniques that uh, heretics today are using to twist Scripture. In fact, I expect Hymenaeus and Philetus were probably a whole lot like the hyperpreterists we have today, you know, quarrelsome, arrogant, trying to pass themselves off as eminent scholars, always spoiling for an argument, convinced that the only reason anyone would ever refuse to debate them is because, you know, their arguments are unassailable. That's what they claim. And have you ever noticed that people who peddle doctrines like that today always seem to be brimful of bombast and intoxicated with their own fleshly arrogance, and they will taunt you to try to get you into a, the sort of fruitless argument that Paul says don't do. Hymenaeus had to be like that because Paul had already turned him over to Satan, but now here he is back with a new sidekick still enticing people to stray from the truth. The error here is significant, and it's spiritually toxic, something about this particular heterodoxy had a peculiar tendency to foment debauchery and to destroy genuine faith. According to verse 16, these guys were leading people into more and more ungodliness, even destroying the faith of some. So this is serious error, and he even names these men. He singles them out for disapproval. He says precisely what their basic error was, He likens their influence to gangrene, so it's clear that these guys posed a profound threat to the church, having already overthrown the faith of some. Now, you might expect the apostle to mount a vigorous and detailed argument against their aberrant doctrine, right? In fact, in a different context, 1 Corinthians 15, that's exactly what Paul does. He meticulously refutes this notion that you can be a Christian and not believe in the doctrine of bodily resurrection. He tears it apart in 1 Corinthians 15. But here he doesn't do that. He just scorns the pretense of their enlightened scholarship by calling it profane and vain babbling, vacuous, superficial, frivolous words to no profit whose only fruit is the ruin of the hearers. And he simply tells Timothy, don't waste your time quarreling about this stuff. Now, Clearly, Paul doesn't mean Timothy should ignore it. Paul himself doesn't ignore it. He names it, and he simply dismisses it for what it is. He's signaling everyone on all sides, and you and me included, that this is a bad doctrine that doesn't deserve to be treated with scholarly gravitas. Again, bodily resurrection is one of the core issues of Christian conviction. 
So the doctrine that's at stake here is by no means trivial. Paul himself declares its importance in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. And he shows his commitment to the importance of this doctrine in the painstaking way he answers it in that epistle to the Corinthians, point by point, for the sake there of people in Corinth who were confused. What's different here? It's simple. Here, the question is whether he should engage people like Hymenaeus and Philetus in a prolonged debate about the issue. And Paul says, no. Charge your people before God not to quarrel about words. He's not saying words are unimportant, especially in matters of faith and doctrine, because as a matter of fact, words are vitally important. Don't forget that in chapter 1, just a short time before this, Paul told Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me. Guard those words. But here in our chapter, he's saying not to get into a protracted argument with someone who has already refused correction because verbal sparring with someone like that is a worthless waste of words. It's just words. So chapter 1 verse 13 says, hold fast the pattern of sound words. And this verse means don't get drawn into arguments over mere words or corrupt words. The person who is devoted to propagating heresy is not going to gain anything from your squabbling anyway other than a widening of his own audience. Verse 16, it will just lead more people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And by the way, Paul's going to return to this point in verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. So we're going to come back to this. But here we have to ask, what is the most effective response to a deadly error, even a damnable heresy like the hyperpreterism of Hymenaeus and Philetus? What should we do instead of quarreling about words with people who have already swerved from the truth? And Paul's answer to that question is the familiar command of verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, as opposed to this gangrenous falsehood. Now, so many expositors have done wonderful treatments of that verse that I don't need to belabor it here. You know, I'm sure, that the English expression accurately handling or rightly dividing, it's translated from a single Greek word, orthotomeo, which literally means to make a straight cut. And Paul is telling Timothy, handle God's Word carefully, interpret it correctly, cut it straight, teach it plainly, without revising it, without adding to it, without taking away from it, you are not working with God's approval if you aren't doing that. And if you're not doing that, you ought to be ashamed. But in this context, Paul is actually making a a bigger and even more specific point. He's telling Timothy that the optimal and most important and most consistently effective way of being faithful to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you, the best way to do that is to devote yourself to the diligent study of God's Word, to handle it carefully and correctly, to teach it well, and to do all of that as unto the Lord for His approval. That's the actual point. Be an approved workman and work hard to guard your own teaching from error 
And in the process, you will do far more to preserve and propagate the truth than you could ever do through a purely polemical, argumentative approach. Instruction is a better way to deal with error than taunting and insults. Now, he's not saying, like some people today would try to say, that, that we should never engage in any kind of argumentation about doctrine. After all, this is the Apostle Paul who was by no means averse to pointing out heresy and refuting it. As I said earlier, all of the apostles uh, in virtually every one of the New Testament epistles exposed and debunked false doctrines with care, emphatically, uncompromisingly. And Paul did it with more relentless intensity and energy than anyone else. He is not telling Timothy to do anything different. No one hated doc false doctrine more passionately than the Apostle Paul. False teachers, you know, stalked his trail, sowing confusion in every church he ever planted, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. There's no way Paul would have ever discouraged Timothy from refuting them, but here's what I want you to see. How we refute error is also vitally important. Paul didn't aspire to be a full-time polemicist. Nor did he want that for Timothy or for any other church leader, for that matter. In Acts 20, when he tells those Ephesian elders that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, he immediately says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. In other words, don't get so fixated on the wolves that you lose your focus on yourself and your own teaching and the flock that God has put into your care. And in the sentence that immediately precedes that command... He reminds them what his own style of ministry was like. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, doctrine and training in righteousness, as well as reproof and correction. And Paul's reproofs and rebukes and exhortations were always tempered with complete patience and teaching, and that's precisely how he wanted Timothy to teach. Now, Paul, of course, was capable of sharp rebukes and stern warnings and harsh words and even biting sarcasm. There are occasional examples of all of those things in the writings of Paul, but they are fairly rare. That was not his default tone. First Thessalonians 2 verse 7, he says, "'We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her children.'" So what gave Paul the ability to remain both dignified and gentle, even when the most gangrenous kind of false teaching reared its ugly head. It was his unshakable confidence in the sovereignty and the steadfast faithfulness of God. Notice verse 19. Right on the heels of describing the destructive impact of Hymenaeus and Philetus, he says this, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and... Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Two statements, both of them taken and paraphrased from Paul right out of Numbers 16. That's the passage that tells about the rebellion that was led by Korah, where, you know, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the rebels. And uh, he's making a subtle point here, I think, that if we stand for the truth and speak up for the truth and proclaim the truth in the face of error... God himself will humble the rebels. That part isn't really your job as a guardian of the truth. 
We're not called to be God's avengers. The real challenge for us is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt us. One thing is clear, isn't it? Paul did not share the combative temperament that so many people nowadays associate with the idea of discernment. He was nothing at all like those podcasters who say they're doing discernment ministry who just seem to relish conflict. I know you've seen them. Their native mode of expression is harsh and caustic and hypercritical and bitterly sarcastic and always cantankerous and constantly quibbling. It's what he says not to do here. And in fact, that attitude disqualifies a man from eldership in the church. 1 Timothy 3.3 says that an elder can't be a drunkard, and he can't be a lover of money, and sandwiched right between those two obviously disqualifying statements is this one. He must not be pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable. After all, True discernment is motivated by the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is not a hint of bellicosity anywhere in that list. So by all means, guard the truth, but start by guarding your own teaching, including the tone and the temperament with which you teach. Does it make you uncomfortable for me to dwell so long on this particular point? Makes me uncomfortable. Doubtless, you will quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself. (laughs) And if you want to point out that there have been times when I might have seasoned my own words or salted my blog posts with a little more grace, I will hang my head in remorse and plead guilty. I've already admitted that this section of Scripture convicts me, and I mean it. But notice how prominent this theme is in this passage. That's where Paul starts and ends. Verse 14, don't quarrel about words. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And then from that verse to the end of the chapter, he keeps stressing the need to be gentle and patient rather than harsh and pugnacious. So we're not yet done with this point. We need to come back to it again before we finish this text. But that's the first thing we must do in order to be faithful guardians of the deposit that we are called to steward. Resist being quarrelsome. An ill-tempered, contentious spirit is the log in the eye of everyone I have ever known whose only real passion is to call out the errors of other people. If that's your approach to discernment, If your polemical style looks and feels like gamesmanship, you're doing it wrong. Paul says it like this, be an approved workman. Guard your teaching. Guard your own teaching, first of all. Here's a second duty for the faithful guardian. Number two, be a sanctified vessel. And he's saying here, guard your heart. Verse 20, Paul employs an analogy that was never very far from his mind. It's the idea that As human beings, we are vessels made by God for His own infinitely wise and sovereign purposes, some for an honorable use, some for dishonorable. So they're all useful, but they're not all equally honorable. Their dignity is determined not by what they are made from, but by what they are made for. For example, you might have a spittoon made out of solid gold, but 
It's still just a thing to be spit into. Dishonorable. On the other hand, you might store your jewels and money in a container made of clay. That's a vessel for an honorable purpose. And by the way, Paul borrows that analogy from the Old Testament. It's rooted in Jeremiah 18, where God is the great potter. But the same word picture is also mentioned in Isaiah 29, 16, and also Lamentations 4, verse 2. In fact, here's Lamentations 4, 2, quote, "'The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands.'" Earthen pots worth their weight in fine gold. That's not because of anything intrinsic in them, their worth. Their immense value is owing to the purpose the potter has designed them for. And Paul uses precisely that imagery in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, where he says this about being entrusted with the truth of the gospel. He says, we have this treasure, that's the gospel, in jars of clay, that's us to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We, that's you and me, are like jars of clay. We're crude. We're inconsequential. We're without much intrinsic value or true beauty, but we are useful to the Lord for a holy purpose that gives us inestimable worth and dignity. And therefore, Paul says it behooves us to keep ourselves pure, be a sanctified vessel, Guard your heart, verse 21. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Notice, this is our duty. God's sovereign will to save us from our sin does not nullify our responsibility to mortify the sin. And in fact, look back at verse 19. Those two statements adapted from number 16 expressly affirm both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The Lord knows who are His. That's God's sovereignty. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's our human responsibility. Verse 21, Paul is merely expounding on that duty, stressing the principle of human responsibility. And therefore, verse 19, depart from iniquity. Verse 21, cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. And here's how, verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So flee what is unholy and follow what is holy. Pretty simple. Now, of course, the context, as we've seen already, makes it clear, I think, that one of the youthful passions that we need to flee is that biting combativeness that young men are especially prone to. But it's also clear that's not all he has in mind. The Greek term epithumia speaks of evil desire, and it's just that general. The NIV says the evil desires of youth. And the term is just that broad. It signifies a covetous craving for something that cannot be righteously or lawfully obtained. It covers everything from an arrogant, pharisaical sense of superiority to any other kind of fleshly self-gratification. Most translations just say lust, and epithumia is often used uh, to signify concupiscence, sexual lust. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter uses that same word, epithumia, and he says, the passions of the flesh wage war against the soul. And think about it, that is true of all such passions, 
speaking of the proud youthful arrogance as well as that burning sexual lust. They all wage war against your soul. Guard your heart, therefore, and mortify those dishonorable passions because, verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful for the master, ready for every good work. So to review, verses 14 through 19, be an approved workman and do that by guarding your teaching. Second, verses 20 through 22, be a sanctified vessel, do that by guarding your heart. And now third, verses 23 through 26, be a humble slave, do that by guarding your attitude. Notice verse 24. Paul calls Timothy the Lord's servant. And the Greek word there, servant, actually signifies a slave. He's not talking about a server like uh, the waitress in in a restaurant. He's talking here about an abject slave, someone who is literally owned by his master. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, a slave. And that is how Every pastor ought to self-identify, all of us. pastor is not the CEO of the church. He's the Lord's servant, and the task he has been given involves shepherding and teaching, and his work, therefore, involves leading, but not lording it over those who are allotted to your charge. Jesus said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and slave of all. Cultivate the attitude of a slave, not the arrogance of a Pharisee. Paul himself had been trained and lived for years as a Pharisee. He was a pedophaging theological nitpicker, passionate about, you know, ceremonial orthodoxy to the point of literal violence. In fact, here's Paul's own testimony about that from Acts 26, verses 10 and 11. He says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He would have made a great discernment blogger. (laughs) Jesus represented the polar opposite style and temperament. Matthew 12, 18 through 20, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, but he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. Those are word pictures that signify his gentleness until he brings justice to victory. And in fact, Jesus put the Pharisees to shame but he did it chiefly with his teaching. He didn't chase them around, carping at them for their theological errors. They did that to him, and he answered all their challenges. He admonished his disciples about the evils of the Pharisees' hypocrisy in a long discourse in Matthew 23, and it's plain spoken. It's filled with stern words of woe and warning, it's seven formal pronouncements of woe and condemnation in that one passage. But Jesus was never unkind or abusive. And significantly, when he stopped Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road, it was not with harsh words of condemnation, but rather a tender appeal, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And that encounter changed everything about Paul, including the ruthless way he handled his theological opponents. His attitude after that was markedly different. As I said, he he used both stinging sarcasm and severe words of condemnation about the Judaizers because of, you know, their relentless efforts to confound the gospel and the law that were leading the Galatians astray. He told Titus that the lazy Cretans needed a sharp rebuke. And in Acts 13.10, he speaks to Elamis, the, malig- the, the magician, and he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's as sharp as his rebukes ever got. And as we've seen, sharp rebukes are occasionally necessary, but not all the time. Sometimes, even in the face of gross evil, a sharp rebuke might be inappropriate. Uh, There was that one occasion when Paul gave a sharp rebuke to the high priest, but apologized when he realized whom he had rebuked. His fierce cruelty and that that brutal, callous, savage zeal for condemning and punishing his adversaries, it's utterly gone when he becomes an apostle. And you see that most clearly right here in our text. He tells Timothy, verse 24, the Lord's servant must be kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil. And I think he means it. In fact, I have no doubt he means it. This final paragraph of 2 Timothy 2 returns us to the theme that ties this whole passage together. And now Paul summarizes the point as plainly as possible. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Now, obviously, not every controversy can automatically be classified as foolish and ignorant. I'll say it again. Paul himself was at the vortex of controversy almost continuously throughout his ministry. It was controversy over key tenets of gospel truth. You know, he was not arguing with fresh seminary graduates over the fine points of Clarence Larkin's dispensational charts. He was defending core gospel truths. But sometimes controversies, even over those cardinal doctrines, can become foolish and ignorant as well. Remember, Hymenaeus and Philetus were teaching a doctrine that in effect denied the future bodily resurrection of the saints. That is no trivial error. But Paul doesn't engage them in controversy, and he doesn't want Timothy to either. Hymenaeus's well-established unteachability made any controversy with him useless and therefore foolish. Paul would no doubt have patiently instructed anybody who was confused by that error, same way he did in 1 Corinthians 15, but he was not going to legitimize Hymenaeus by engaging him in a dispute. You know, the Apostle Paul was nothing like that guy whose chief ministry is using the internet to maximize the scandal of every doctrinal error he can find. Paul rejects that kind of controversy-mongering because it engenders strife. It breeds contentiousness and, and quarrels among foolish, unlearned people whose passions then are fueled more by their own ignorance than by their understanding of Scripture. They need teaching. Ignorance can only be conquered by instruction. Insults and derision are no help whatsoever to people who are merely confused. And any unkind, abusive, polemical style is inappropriate. It can literally drive people deeper into error. 
Proverbs 26, 21, as charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Romans 12, 21, overcome evil with good. That brutal arrogance that you see so often in online discussion forums is clean contrary to the true aim of a godly teacher. Verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. And and given the context here, he means gifted and eager to teach rather than always itching to dispute. That's the contrast. He needs to be ready to teach rather than ready to fight, apt to teach. And he uses a word here that's… it speaks of child training. So it includes gentle correction along with instruction able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now think about it. That is the actual goal, right? Not to condemn people, but to deliver them from the strongholds of error. Paul's words to Timothy about this are, too numerous and too emphatic to brush aside. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God does not consist in endless disputation. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So let me say this as candidly as possible. For the sake of my brothers who think of themselves as especially gifted in the art of discernment or polemical theology, if you want to be a guardian of the truth but you consistently ignore or even throw scorn on the clear message of this text, you sacrifice a significant amount of credibility in everything else you say. If you really want to be a faithful guardian of the truth, you need to guard your own heart against any temptation to ignore or downplay or explain away or minimize the truth of what Paul is saying to Timothy in this chapter. Because if you don't, rational people will not take you seriously, nor should they. Now, I hope if you know me at all, you know certainly that I believe with all my heart that error must be candidly confronted and corrected. By all means, put away falsehood and let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. But while you're doing that, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander also be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you, and speak the truth in love. That's how to be faithful in your guardianship of the truth. Be an approved workman. Be a sanctified vessel, and be a humble slave. slave. In other words, keep a close watch on your own teaching. Diligently guard your own heart, your imagination, your thought life, your passions, your personal purity, and while you are at it, keep careful control of your attitude. Wage the good warfare, having, a, having faith and a good conscience, and hold fast the faithful word as you have been taught, and you will be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. If all those things are in order, you will be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, 
give us firm hearts with regard to the truth. Give us loving hearts for those whom you've placed in our pastoral care. Give us generous hearts towards brethren with whom we may disagree. And give us tender, caring hearts for those in our world who are held captive by the lies of the devil. May we always speak the truth in love. May we be passionate for the truth. But may that passion always be tempered not by fleshly arrogance, but by the meekness and humility of Christ. For his sake and in his name we pray. Amen.